Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and I'm your host, Heather Vale. Today I'm speaking with Michelle Jackson, President and CEO of Junior Achievement of Southern Nevada. JA of Southern Nevada is the local branch of Junior Achievement Worldwide. Breaking news, JA Worldwide has just been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, arguably the world's most prestigious honor. While the winner won't be announced until the end of the year, this nomination illustrates the importance of JA's dedicated work around the world. The nonprofit organization works with schools to inspire and prepare students for success through proven age-appropriate educational programs in financial literacy, career readiness, and entrepreneurship. Through Michelle's leadership, Junior Achievement continues to expand its reach into local K-12 classrooms. She also works closely with community leaders to cultivate partnerships that will sustain and generate new avenues for delivering JA's programs. Michelle, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Heather. So before we get deeper into the news, just a little bit of background. For those who aren't familiar, what exactly does Junior Achievement do? So Junior Achievement focuses on three areas primarily, and those are financial literacy, workforce readiness, and entrepreneurship skills. And we believe that uh, these skills are foundational for any young person to be able to grow up and essentially pursue their best life, their best career path. And uh, we believe that they need these in order to be successful at whatever it is that they're dreaming about or envisioning themselves doing and for becoming when they are a young adult. How widespread is junior achievement around the world? So junior achievement is in right around 100 countries, and uh, we serve about 10 million students per year around the world. That's huge. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big, they're big numbers. I know when I read them, it kind of, kind of surprises me, my, me too. <laughs> so what about in the U.S.? Approximately how many junior achievement outlets do we have here? So in the United States, uh, we have 102 area offices. Uh, so basically we are in every state. Uh, in some in some states, we're in you know we have multiple offices or multiple cities that we're represented in, especially some of our larger states like Texas or Florida, places like that that are you know depending on the layout of the uh, even here in the state of Nevada, we have two offices. So in total, there's 102 in the United States. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so tell us more about this Nobel Peace Prize nomination for JA Worldwide. How exactly did that happen? You know, it was kind of a surprise to us. It wasn't on our radar that that was going to happen. Uh, there was a professor over in uh, Europe that actually made the nomination. Uh, no one knows exactly who the person is because that's part of, of the nomination process uh, for the Nobel Peace Prize is that you're, you're not allowed to 
to know until uh, after the fact who nominated you. And in some cases, uh, people never find out who the nominator was. Uh, so it was, you know, like I said, a big surprise to our organization as a whole. And it, I think, really boils down to that junior achievement worldwide has had a lot of coverage lately and a lot of awareness around the fact that we we fall into the top 10 NGOs, which are non-government organizations that provide services. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits that are government related in, in what they do or they're you know they're they're overseen or or primarily funded by by government entities. Um, so in order to be an NGO, you you can't be associated with any type of uh, government uh, entity that's managing you in any way. I believe that that's part of what helped us to get on the radar, and then also just some of the the great work and results that uh, you see Junior Achievement doing worldwide in countries literally all over the world countries that, you know, in some cases, our country, the United States might not have the best uh, relationships with even, uh, but we're doing work in those countries and we're able to get the leaders in those countries to to work with us. So it's, it's really, really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems like most Nobel Peace Prizes are awarded to individuals rather than organizations. So what does it mean for JA as an organization to be recognized in this way? I think the biggest thing that it means for us is just it is affirmation of the work that we're already doing and that it is meaningful, that it is important to our next generation, to the economy of, of our world, to the, the direction of our youth and the, those next leaders. And so I think the biggest thing for us is just affirmation that we're on the right path. We're doing work that's meaningful. The investments that our donors and our volunteers make uh, worldwide are meaningful and impactful, and they're causing real positive changes. Yeah, for sure. So we kind of have a sense of what the economic education situation is in our own backyards, but the junior achievements around the world, the 100 countries that you mentioned, are they dealing with similar issues to what we are in Southern Nevada, or is it totally different depending on what country you go to? You know, it's, it's totally different depending on what country that we're operating in. And I think that that's one of the things that's really wonderful about our programming is that it has enough flexibility within it that, you know, there may be the financial literacy focus in another country might be more on driving small business and, um, you know, creating more entrepreneurs so that that community economically can have more sustainability and can function on their own and, and have young people and people in their community that, you know, don't have severe needs such as, you know, food and shelter and clothing. So, you know, by building that uh, entrepreneurial mindset within the community, it begins to change the financial health overall where, where the junior achievement is operating. Okay. 
So how does junior achievement help break the cycle of poverty that some kids and families experience from generation to generation? It really is about the tools. We're equipping uh, young people with information and an understanding of how the world works, how the economy works, uh, what's going to be expected of them, what are the skills, the attitude uh, that they need to walk in the door with for a job, uh, for their career. And it's really about just understanding everything that is that already exists. But, you know, if you didn't have a parent that managed their money well or understood the stock market or how to invest uh, in a 401k or a mutual fund, they'd never been exposed to that. Or even, even here in, in Southern Nevada, we have a tremendous amount of uh, people in our community that are unbanked. They don't use bank services because they are don't understand them. They don't understand the the value of banking and how it directly correlates to your ability to, you know, get loans to buy a car or buy a house. So it's really giving students the tools and the information just to make different decisions and different choices and to not be afraid of things that they that maybe their parents have never done or, uh, or or tools their parents have never utilized. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about those tools because, you know, like you mentioned, even some adults, when we start talking about loans and mortgages and financial planning and banking, sometimes people's eyes just glaze over and it's like, okay, that's a lot. <laughs> so how do you make that fun and interesting for kids? What I've noticed over the years doing this work with Junior Achievement is that students are very interested in money mm -hmm. and they're very interested in knowing how they can make money. And they're also interested in themselves. They're interested in learning about who they can be when they, when they grow up and you know, where do my skills and interests align to a career um, or a job and then, and then how am I going to get there? And the way that we make it fun is that when someone is teaching junior achievement programming, you know, we will teach a concept, say income and expenses and uh, profit and loss. And, you know, those are terms that a lot of, a lot of people don't use in their day-to-day -day life. You know, even if we, if we live by a budget, you know, we don't talk about this month we had a profit or a loss. So the kids are getting exposed to what I call business language and financial language. But then they take that information that they've just learned through talking about it in discussion, and they then make it, you know, we make it into a fun game where they're playing a game where they own a hot dog stand and they've got to buy their hot dogs and their buns and, you know, the condiments that are going to go on it. And then they're going to attempt to sell it and they find out, you know, did I have a profit or a loss? So everything we do has a, a tangible aspect to it mm -hmm. where they get to put put what they just learned into practice almost immediately. Okay. What's the difference between the curriculum or the programming for kids that are in kindergarten, elementary school, middle school, and high school? Sure. So elementary school, the programming is it's taught cumulatively, meaning that we want to see an elementary student from kindergarten and then every year after all, all the way through fifth grade, mm -hmm. uh, the concepts build on themselves. So in kindergarten, 
The kids are learning about things like needs and wants and what the difference is between needs and wants. They're learning about um, how they can earn money, how whoever they live with, whether it's parents or aunt or uncle or grandparent, they, they have a job and they earn money to pay for the needs and wants of their household. They're learning about how to save money as well and also um, how to even donate money and what it means, you know, what philanthropy is. We're starting to expose them to that as well at that age. And then as it progresses up um, into middle and high school, we start exposing the students to different types of budgeting tools and everything from, you know, how to be prepared to buy your first car uh, to how to fill out your FAFSA form to try to get funding, you know, for college uh, and even how to generate wealth. So we start sharing with them and teaching them about not only things like the stock market or mutual funds, but understanding the difference of the types of investments in those tools and mm-hmm. even learning about things like the different types of insurance that we use for financial tools. So things like life insurance or disability insurance and you know how those play a part in your financial safety net for you and your family. Um, and I mean, honestly, I didn't get exposed to those types of things till I was well into my 20s and, you know, was being invited at, you know, by an employer, you know, hey, do you want to buy this disability insurance? Well, what's that? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to, yeah. you know, throw throw my money at that every month? <laughs> so these kids are getting, you know, that information uh, in middle and high school. Yeah, and that's the way it should be, I think. I mean, it's it's one of those things that <laughs> it's crucial for I mean, we we can't go through life without knowing how finances work. It's just one of those things that we must know. So why wait until we're adults to learn it? Well, and I feel like you either learn the hard way or or you yeah. learn hopefully, you know, not the hard way because <laughs> you had some guidance. <laughs> exactly. So are you in every school in the Clark County District? I wish we were. Uh, We are not. We're in about 55 schools a year right now, and we reach roughly 20,000 students a year. So 55 out of how many CCSD schools are there? I want to say just with elementary, we have about 150 elementary schools. Not talking schools, but talking students we are able to see annually roughly seven to nine percent of the total student population enrolled in Clark County School District. That's with hitting that 20,000 number. Okay, and how do you choose which schools you're going to offer the programming to? So we will work with most schools, but we do specifically target wanting to work with students that are in low to moderate income neighborhoods. And the way that we identify that is by the students, the students that go to that school, they qualify for free and reduced lunch um, programs. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something that their parents have to fill out information on for their child to qualify for that federal program. And so we will target and we prefer to work with, um, you know, as many school partners as we can that have high numbers of students that are receiving free and reduced lunch. And uh, annually, we reach about 80 to 85% of the kids that we are working with 
do qualify for free and reduced lunch on an annual basis. Nice. Okay. So you also form partnerships with local community leaders. What does that look like? That looks like several things. Uh, we work with uh, different corporations uh, for uh, financial support. We don't generally charge anything to our school partners for our programming. And the reason that we can do that is because of their commitment and support to us financially. Many of our partners also uh, donate their time and then the time of their staff to come out and volunteer and be in the classroom with us. And we also work with um, several other nonprofit partners in Southern Nevada that are supporting youth as well but they are looking for or lacking education or information in those three areas, the financial literacy or workforce or entrepreneurship skills. And so we'll partner with other nonprofit groups like Leaders in Training or Girl Scouts of Southern Nevada or the YMCA, and we'll bring our programs into them. Okay. So we had Will Abbott on a few months ago, and he talked about JA in a day. Is that primarily the type of financial education? So it's like one day kind of boot camp thing, or do you have programs that you're in there weekly, monthly? What are the different options? Sure. So within elementary, we that is the way that we primarily work with schools is through JA in a day. But our middle and high school programming are multi-week. So they are anywhere from six to eight lessons, depending on what program the teacher decides that they want to have in their classroom. And in those scenarios, the volunteer is coming back to the classroom usually once a week for the duration of the program. Okay, great. So if someone is listening and they want to get involved with helping you in your mission, whether that be donating, volunteering, giving their expertise, or even a corporation that wants to partner in some way or an organization that wants to partner, what are the best ways for people to get involved? I think really it's to some extent, you know, it's, it's up to them if they want to get involved with us for volunteering. Uh, we do a very short training for them and then we help them find the best fit, whether it's elementary, middle or high school programming that they want to do. And we provide them with a curriculum and they go in the classroom and teach that curriculum. Wow, that sounds like they're just being thrown out there. Here goes. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. We're definitely there to support them. And, um, you know, they're, they're always uh, in the classroom with the teacher. The teacher manages all of the, any of the discipline or the classroom management that that's still handled by the teacher. Okay. And then you have special events throughout the year as well that they can help out with? We do. Uh, we have actually in October, uh, an event called the Booathon coming up at the bowling tournament on October 15th and 16th. And we have sponsorships for that. We have bowling teams that people can participate in. And then in the spring, we have our Swimming with the Big Fish luncheon. And uh, that is a lot of fun. Uh, we bring in one of our school partners and the kids participate in kind of like a Shark Tank format where they're presenting uh, as teams their business ideas. And we have a panel of judges and even the audience gets in on the action and we award students scholarship money to go to college. 
Wow, that sounds awesome. So are these like real business ideas that they have or just hypothetical? Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, some of them are have serious potential. We've had some amazing concepts uh, come out of our some of our Shark Tank programming. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> I love that. So is the information for all of these events and opportunities on the website? They are. Uh, JASNB.org. Uh, we have information on there and everything from donating, volunteering, getting involved with one of the events. Even if you just want to learn more or talk, talk to one of the team members, uh, we've got a ton of details on our website as well on the different types of programs that we offer. Uh, so people can go on and actually look and see what does the program or the curriculum look like for, say, kindergarten versus um, eighth grade. And back to the Nobel Peace Prize nomination for a second. How does that trickle down? So we know that JA Worldwide was nominated, but how does that raise the prestige and the awareness around junior achievement of Southern Nevada as well? Well, I feel like it it just it does just that. It's you know, it's a feather in in our cap for every office because we all are doing similar work around the world and I think it just raises the level of credibility of the work that Junior Achievement is doing as a whole and the the need and necessity of that work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, congratulations to the whole Junior Achievement organization on the nomination. I think that's absolutely incredible. And so anyone listening, if you want to get involved, if you want to find out more about what Junior Achievement's doing, if you want to donate, if you want to volunteer, if you want to take part in any of the fundraisers or other events, JASNV.org is the website, stands for Junior Achievement, Southern Nevada, JASNV.org. There's the Buathon bowling tournament coming up in October, October 15th and 16th, and Swimming with the Big Fish Luncheon, which happens in the spring, as well as all the other incredible programming and partnerships that they do with the schools, which is absolutely essential work because equipping the kids with financial knowledge is uh, probably one of the most crucial things we can give them. So. Michelle, thank you so much for being here today and letting us know more about Junior Achievement and the Nobel Peace Prize nomination. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heather. We appreciate the opportunity to share. When a student lacks some of the most basic needs, like food, clothing, and school supplies, it can be challenging to even attend to school. It can be hard to study, tough to concentrate, impossible to thrive at communities in schools we address this issue every day out in the community there are great resources for students and we bring these resources directly to the students who need them most we work to ensure that they have everything they need to re-engage in learning in the classroom and at home including access to technology learning materials and even emotional support by forging caring relationships with students and bringing communities of support to them. Our staff works to achieve equitable learning conditions so all kids can succeed in school and in life. And that's what Communities in Schools is all about. To learn more, visit communitiesinschools.org. The future depends on teachers. Every day, teachers are shaping our tomorrows 
starting their students on journeys that will change the course of history. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist who will make preventing pandemics their life's work, sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who will help combat climate change, and generating possibilities for a student who will be the first in their family to graduate college. It all starts with teachers who meet challenges with creativity, who reinvent education for the future, who work towards a school system that lifts up every child, regardless of race, income, or zip code, and who enable the full potential of our students, our communities, and our country. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Shape the future. Teach. Learn more and receive free support at teach.org. This is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and joining me today is Brian Walsh, student loan expert and manager of financial planning for SoFi Bank. As we gear up for the new school year, inflation and rising interest rates are having an effect on student loans and general costs of living. Brian has some tips for making this process easier and more cost effective. Brian, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So what options do parents and students have for saving money on higher education costs? Yeah, so typically as we work with families, uh, especially right now, we are really kind of focusing in three different areas that could potentially provide some savings. Number one would be making sure that they fully understand and take advantage of their financial aid package. Uh, number two would be thinking through what their budget is going to look like for the school year, whether it be housing, food, transportation, things like that. Uh, and then number three would be, you know, most of the time there's going to be a gap between what they plan on spending and what financial aid they'd get. So thinking about the best way to fill that gap, whether it be student loans, tapping into savings, different options along those lines. Okay, so when you talk about understanding financial aid packages, what are the different types of packages that they would need to go through and figure out and try to understand? Yeah, so at a high level, when, when we think about financial aid packages, there's, you know, there's going to be free money that they have available to them, such as grants and scholarships that uh, everyone pretty much will take advantage of when it's in their package. Uh, then we'll have earned money that would be available, such as, let's say, a work-study program, which is an area where sometimes people don't take full advantage of that, and they're kind of leaving money on the table. And then finally, you would have borrowed money uh, in the form of federal student loans, whether those be subsidized or unsubsidized. So making sure they understand what type of federal loan they're eligible for and how to best utilize that. Uh, ideally before tapping into any sort of uh, private or other federal student loans. Okay, so once they've maxed out the grants, the scholarships, the federal loans, what are your recommendations for filling that gap that you talked about? Yeah, when it comes to filling that gap, I, I think it's going to be a little bit different depending on the family, because at a high level, will come across families that are borrowing money and they need to decide whether or not the parents want to have the student loans in their name or if the student loan is going to be in the student's name and then most likely having a parent or another family member co-sign that student loan and and really that choice comes down to who do they want to be primarily responsible for paying that money back and we encourage families to think about that long and hard especially the parents because we don't want the parents to take on 
payments for you know five, 10 plus years, if that's gonna impact their own retirement and their own finances and they can't handle that. So that's really the decision factor between parent student loans and then you know private student loans in the student's name. Okay, so presumably a student or potential student who's 18, 19, 20 years old is not going to have as good a credit history or as good a credit score as their parents might who have been building that credit history for years and years and years. So does that impact what the terms are going to be on the loan if you decide, oh, well, hey, I'm just going to have my son take out the loan and I'll co-sign for him as a backer. But is that going to impact the interest rates and impact the terms that are available for that loan? Yeah. So, I mean, you kind of hit the, the problem right on the mark as far as uh, taking out student loans in the student's name and why pretty much all of them are going to involve co-signers, at least that I interact with. Um, so as long as they have a co-signer, uh, then they should be fine from an underwriting perspective, whether, you know, let's say I take out a student loan, I'm a student, and I have my parent on that going through the underwriting process, as opposed to uh, a parent just taking out that student loan directly. Either way, that, that parent kind of adds, I guess, credibility or data behind it related to age of credit, income, all those types of things. So we'll typically see co-signers come into play to really add that in order for the student to, to qualify to take out a student loan. So basically the parent's credit history will cancel out the students and they still get the same terms regardless of whether the parent is the primary borrower or co-signer. Yeah, it would be it would be very very similar, and any kind of a, the easiest way to think about it is you know just truly appreciating what a cosigner means. Uh, so a cosigner on a student loan, they're ultimately serving as the backstop. So if the primary borrower isn't able to make payments down the road, then those payments are going to however cosign that loan. So that's why they play a cosigner plays an important role in the underwriting. But then also as we're talking to parents about this they need to kind of think about that of saying, okay, if we do have to take on these payments, what will that do to our finances? And, and that's not best case scenario. That's not ideally what happens, uh, but it is something we want to make sure we keep in the back of our mind because we don't want parents to take on these payments five years from now. And then all of a sudden that puts their entire retirement in jeopardy because they're taking on those payments. Yeah, in fact, I've heard of parents who tap into their retirement savings in order to make student loan payments for their child. Is that a good idea? Uh, generally speaking, no. Uh, I, I think it's it, it really puts us in a tough spot uh, because as a financial planner, my answer would be like, okay, we really don't want to do that because there's no student loan equivalent for your own retirement. So if you put yourself in a tough spot, then you work longer, you reduce your expenses, or, you know, worst case scenario, you end up, you know, partially relying on your kids down the road. But as a parent, I also understand the desire to want to make sure you provide for your kids. So it really is important to make sure you don't overextend yourself on that. Yeah, for sure. How are the financial aid rules and regulations changing this fall? Yeah, so what we've seen uh, over the course of thankfully, the last few years is the FAFSA process or the, the free application for federal student aid, that process has actually gotten easier over the years. And I, I say that and, and most parents are like, okay, this is still not an enjoyable experience. 
but that process has gotten easier and it's going to continue to get a little bit easier as well. Uh, so the form's going to get a little bit more condensed uh, as you fill it out for the next school year. On top of that, you may see some terminology changes where for as long as I can remember, we always heard EFC or expected family contribution, which is basically saying like, okay, how much could this family realistically afford to contribute to a college education? That terminology is going to be changing to the student aid index. So very, very similar concept, just you know, a slight difference in, in what they're calling it. And then lastly, for, for next school year, uh, there's going to be some slight tweaks to how the calculations are figured out uh, for families that have more than one kid in school at a time. So if you do have more than one kid in school uh, this school year, you may see some changes for financial aid for next year. So you might want to just save a little bit extra and try to get ahead of that a little bit. Okay. So I know when I was going to university, there were basically two kinds of students. There was the students who you know, had all of their finances paid for, whether that be by scholarship or whether that be parents are paying for it. And then there were the other ones who were working their way through school, basically taking on jobs after school whenever they could and using that money to pay for their own student finances. Either way, is it is it better for a student to take out a job and help pay for that money while they're going through school? Or is it better to concentrate on school now and then work later? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really tough question that I don't think there's always a one size fits all answer to that. I, I think what we talk through families about is it's important to really think about, OK, what's your major and what's the earning potential when you graduate? And at the same time, how much does it cost on an annual basis? Because what we really want to kind of think about is, okay, if we delay graduating by one, two, maybe three years, that's, you know, a couple of years of lost earning potential. So if you're in a major with a very lucrative kind of earning potential, then that could be a pretty significant amount. So it might not be worth taking on extra work to save a couple thousand dollars to delay your graduation where you lose a six-figure salary for a few years. The same can be said if you go to a relatively high-priced school where maybe out of pocket you're spending 20, 30, 40 grand a year, extending your, your college stay by a few years in order to save a couple grand a year really might not make sense. On the flip side, if you have maybe less lucrative uh, major or maybe you're going to a more cost-efficient college, then it could make sense to, to work while you're going to school and extending that a little bit. So it's really trying to figure out what's that return that I'm getting on my education based on the cost of attendance, the major, and what that earning potential is going to be. Okay, so those factors contribute to figuring out what kind of repayment options make the most sense when you're choosing the repayment options on a private student loan? Yeah, I guess I, I would argue that those factors should influence everything in, in the college you know, process from the school that you select to how much student loan debt you're willing to take on uh, to how you plan on repaying your student loans, where uh, ideally majors and occupations that are going to have higher earning potential, they have the flexibility and the ability to take on more student loan debt, uh, pay more for college, and if they're going to repay their student loans, uh, they'll have higher income in order to kind of offset higher student loan payments. 
but then those who maybe are going to have less lucrative fields, uh, they're really going to want to control that student loan debt as much as possible, whether it be through choosing less expensive schools, graduating as quickly as possible, or even making some payments while you're in school. So that way you have less to repay once you start working, if you're going to have a, a, a relatively smaller salary compared to some other fields. Okay. And in the meantime, while they're going to school, you had mentioned budgeting for expenses. So what are the best ways that students can create a budget to account for those expenses, like their housing, their books, lab fees, computers, stuff like that? Yeah, I think a good starting point is, is to sit through and kind of go and focus on the big ticket items as far as where you're going to be living and how much that's going to cost. How do you reduce that with roommates? Uh, what you're going to be eating and how you can figure out, okay, on campus versus cooking my own food, uh, transportation. Those tend to be the big ticket items that we see in people's budgets. And if we could at least plan ahead for that, think about ways to reduce that, then it can be a really good exercise, not only to reduce what we need to borrow for school, but then also these are really valuable lessons and habits that quite frankly, most people don't graduate college with and it ends up kind of slowing them down when they start their career and they try to get their finances in order as a, a working adult. Okay. Now, the financial world in general is changing. You know, you're from SoFi and it's a relatively new concept, these digital banks, for lack of a better word, is what I would call <laughs> SoFi. You know, we, we see the ads, we know you have credit cards, we know there's virtual bank accounts and stuff like that. Are there student loans available as well? And how would a parent choose between the traditional banking system and some of the newer options that come from services like SoFi? Yes. Yeah, so we, we do offer student loans, both private student loans to help you know, fund an education while you're actually going through school, as well as refinancing student loans when, when you're done with school. And really, it's you access everything online, which I, I think COVID accelerated that trend, even if you work with a traditional or legacy kind of financial institution. Um, so it really is accessing the information through SoFi.com or the SoFi app. And I think the power of things being online is whether it's through us or through someone else, you can quickly compare what your rates are going to be and what you qualify for with a handful of different companies to make sure you're getting the best deal, which I always encourage people to do. And I love SoFi, but I think they need to do their homework and kind of uh, shop around as much as possible for something that's this important. Yeah. So what are the best ways to do that comparison shopping, that initial stage of figuring out, okay, these are all my options and now I'm going to narrow it down and choose one? Yeah, so the best place to start would be, uh, at least through SoFi, you can do a check your rate where you can pretty much just enter in some basic information and say, okay, what would I qualify for? What would the interest rate be? What would the terms be without actually having a hard credit inquiry where it actually goes on your credit score and it kind of dings you a little bit? Uh, a lot of other institutions offer that as well, where you could just kind of check your rate. And that's really the first step. And then once you kind of compare your options and you see, okay, here's the length of repayment, here's the interest rate, here's my repayment options uh, with a handful of different places, then you can actually go through the formal application process, provide the documentation, things like that, and, and really get the process rolling. 
Okay, so number one is figure out the financial aid packages that you have available, that free money. Number two is figure out what your budgeting is going to be for the year. Number three, figure out how to fill that gap. And during that process, pre-qual, first of all, through various different loans. So you're getting a soft inquiry rather than a hard inquiry. Figure out your options and then go from there. Is that the game plan? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> awesome. You know, you made it sound easy. I know it's not an easy process. It's anything financial related is going to be, you know, an extensive process, but you've made it as simple as possible. If people are interested in SoFi as one of their options, where would they go to find out more info? Yeah, you can go to SoFi.com or you can download the SoFi app. And I think a big thing for me is we offer a ton of great articles, videos, access to financial planners, things like that to help people I guess, kind of go through this process in as simple of a way as possible. Okay, awesome. SoFi.com, S-O-F-I.com. You can find out more information, read the articles, educate yourself a little bit better on the process. And then if we follow the steps that Brian laid out, you'll end up with a better result as far as student loans for the future. So Brian, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your expertise and letting parents know what the options are. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This message is for Karina, our mom who finished her high school diploma at age 28. Hi, Mom. It's Amethyst and Nicholas. Congratulations on getting your diploma. You worked so hard and have taught us so much. We love you. When you graduate, they graduate. Finish your high school diploma for you and for them. Visit finishyourdiploma.org to find free and supportive adult education centers near you. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. I'm Tumani. When I was younger, I may have did some stupid things. I committed some crimes, even got shot, but I'm not a criminal. That's right. I'm Jamal. I work for Youth Advocate Programs. Yeah, I was Tumani's advocate, helping him stay out of jail, stay in the neighborhood, get a job, and work hard to see a better future for himself. If you have a change of mindset, you can have a change of action. As a little kid, I experienced trauma and I acted out. Made some mistakes, but I'm not a mistake. No, she's a good student and a great kid. As Jalen's YAP advocate, I'm always here for her. With the Youth Advocate Programs, I was able to connect with Jalen. YAP is a community-based alternative to youth incarceration, congregate placement, and neighborhood violence. After completing our program, 86% of participants were arrest-free. YAP works. And now, I'm a YAP advocate, helping kids like me find a better way. Youth Advocate Programs. Others talk social change. We make it happen. Learn how at yapinc.org. You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and today I'm speaking with Leanne Adams, Senior Vice President of National Initiatives for NeighborWorks America. NeighborWorks America has been striving to make every community equitable with affordable homeownership and rental opportunities for almost 45 years. They offer a range of resources, including grant funding, counseling, and training. Leanne has more than 20 years of experience working with community development organizations on the design, implementation, and evaluation of community-based economic development in the U.S. and Latin America. She's also worked for the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, the World Bank, the Futures Group International, and the U.S. Peace Corps. Leanne, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you to talk about our survey findings and some critical issues facing our communities when it comes to homeownership and financial stability. 
Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a pressing issue right now. Let's take a few steps back first to give a foundation. When exactly was NeighborWorks started and what was the purpose back then? Yeah, we were created in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, we were, were actually a congressionally chartered organization, and our roots are really in um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, actually, in a local community there where a leader named uh, Dorothy Richardson brought together, she was seeing disinvestment in her neighborhood, and so she brought together public partners, local banks, and community residents to really revitalize that neighborhood. And from that was really the foundation of what became NeighborWorks America. And so we work nationally now with a network of organizations around the country, about 250 organizations that are doing that same work. They're investing in their communities, whether they're urban, rural, suburban, native communities, to really bring investment and create opportunities for people that are living there. Okay, when you say bring investment, what exactly are the kinds of resources and services that you're offering to potential homeowners? Yeah, we offer our organization. So we we look to bring investment into those communities through these organizations. So it can be creating new homes, affordable homes, whether those are rental homes or for home ownership, investing in down payment assistance, financial coaching, housing counseling to help people achieve the path to home ownership. In some cases, they're working comprehensively in their communities and investing in you know, needed resources for those communities, whether it be uh, a new grocery store or a community facility or a recreation center. So it really varies across the country, but it's all about strengthening those communities, creating opportunities for people to live there and to thrive and to be engaged. Okay. Now, you mentioned a recent survey. In that survey, what have you found out about prospective homeowners? Yeah, so you know, we did find in this recent survey that there are still racial disparities, we know this, that exist in home ownership. But we did see that there is some hope that their people are still looking towards home ownership, but the process is still is too complicated. The survey revealed that 70% of Americans still believe the home buying process is too difficult and they need help. And some of the big factors that are are keeping people the barriers for pursuing home ownership are credit and their overall financial standing. Do they have savings? Uh, you know, is that credit good? Can they can they really start this path towards home ownership? You know, and, and a majority, 64% of Americans believe that banks may not approve them for home ownership. So there's still some doubt that they can even qualify to be a homeowner. But again, a majority believe that owning a home uh, now seems more important than it did in 2019. Okay, so these doubts and concerns about it being too difficult, or maybe I don't have the credit, or maybe I don't have the financial standing, maybe the banks won't approve me. Are these concerns that are based in reality, or is it simply fears that are getting in the way of them moving forward? There's, there's some reality to these barriers, for sure. And there is uh, there are challenges working through traditional financial institutions for many low-income folks who may have bad credit or, or credit history that, you know, it is challenging. That is a real barrier. But, you know, you can work with an organization like a NeighborWorks organization or another local housing organization to, you know, build that credit, understand the process, find a mortgage that is affordable and sustainable that's in your own interest that you can you can remain stably housed in that home. Um, and so that's why we really advocate for people to connect with that local housing counseling organization and start that path. A counselor or a financial coach can meet you wherever you are. So if you're a renter and you need to build credit, there are tools that help you to do that. 
If you want to repair your credit or build savings, a financial coach can help you do that. So really seeking that support from a trusted partner in the community is a good way to start the process. Don't wait until you, you know, you just start the process and then and then someone can kind of guide you and advise you along the way and help you and help you achieve that dream. And you just you have to keep at it. You mentioned racial disparity. How are people of different ethnicities impacted in different ways when we're talking about affordable housing? Yeah, I mean, one of the the biggest things that's still real is there's a 30% gap between the black home ownership rate and the white home ownership rate now. And in fact, the black Mm. home ownership rate is lower than it was 10 years ago. And so these things like the credit box, uh, access to credit, you know, how how we underwrite different people and their experience, these are all real challenges. And so, you know, having having local partners in the community is really important to help uh, to help folks achieve homeownership if that is what they want to do. And I'd say like it's important for that building generational wealth. Uh, homeownership remains one of the most important ways to build generational wealth over time. Okay. So one thing I noticed locally in Las Vegas is over the past few years, housing prices went up astronomically, which pretty much priced a lot of people out of the market. And yet on the flip side, at the same time, the interest rates were relatively low. Uh Well, now the interest rates are starting to go up. They've already been raised and probably will go up a few more times does that make this situation worse or will the housing prices come down to balance that out? Yeah, I don't I don't know if the I think it will the rates will slow uh, the sales perhaps, but they um I, you know there might be some markets where housing prices get a little softer or decline or level out, but I don't think we're going to see what we saw 10 years ago where we saw, you know, particularly in communities like like Las Vegas where there was a big decline in the housing value. But, you know, I think what we're seeing is, you know, even at the national and federal level, an understanding of the importance of investing in tools that help affordable homeowners. So down payment assistance is really important. And you see many of the banks offering new kinds of assistance there, but also federal programs launching, state housing finance agencies launching those programs, and local organizations like NeighborWorks organizations offering those. So you know, working with someone who can help you identify the resources you qualify for and layer those uh, can help also our organizations build affordable housing. So working through a nonprofit builder or a nonprofit organization that is specifically looking to help people of color or low income people achieve homeownership can be a good route to go. So generally speaking, do you think the situation is getting better? Like, is the future bright for someone who wants to be a homeowner, or is it getting worse? It's hard. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, it's still hard. I think it's always been hard. If you look at the rates, I mean, I can't, I can't say if, you know, there's, there's a 30% gap, then if we want to really close that gap, then we have to put invest in some real resources to help people. And so... I think it's not a time to walk away from the dream of being a homeowner. It is still, again, one of the most important ways to build that generational wealth. And so, you know, you may not be able to get there in a week, but you could get there maybe in a year or two years. So starting the process and really, you know, not not discounting it from the get-go, but really thinking about and working with a local uh, trusted advisor, a counselor, or another agency that can help you navigate the process. I mean, that is what our survey found that people really want to seek out that guidance so that they can navigate the process and and eventually become a homeowner. 
Okay, so I'm sure there's people listening that are interested. You've mentioned working with local nonprofits, working with a counselor, working with an advisor, but let's put it into concrete terms. How exactly would someone go forward with that process if they're interested in seeking out those services and resources and tools? Yeah, so there in uh, Las Vegas area, there are two organizations, the Neighborhood Housing Services of Southern Nevada, and then Nevada Hand is also located there in um, in Nevada. And so those organizations are, are two local partner organizations that work with community members, both on financial uh, capability or coaching, but also, you know, affordable rental and housing counseling. And so they can they can work with folks in the community who are interested in homeownership or, again, just interested in improving their financial position and building better credit. And then, of course, uh, if others are listening, you can go to our website, which is neighborworks.org, and you can find more information and resources there. Would neighborworks.org steer them towards those other organizations, the Neighborhood Housing Services and Nevada Hand, or should they go to those organizations directly? Oh, they could go to those organizations directly, or there is a link on our website um, where you can look up our network and find organizations in your community. Okay, fantastic. So once again, neighborworks.org, neighborworks.org, and you can find all the information about resources and services that are available to help you get into that dream of home ownership and the organizations that they're working with here locally, Neighborhood Housing Services of Southern Nevada, and also Nevada Hand, two great organizations in the Valley, but you can find all of that directly at neighborworks.org. Leanne, thank you so much for being here and helping people understand what the situation is and what they can do to move forward and make their dream come true. I appreciate your time. No, I thank you. Have a great day. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the, the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help, but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the Valley. Monday's Dark with Mark Chinook is a bi-monthly musical fundraising party at The Space, with each event raising $10,000 for a specific charity in 90 minutes. Upcoming shows include Monday, August 8th at 8 p.m., benefiting the Muscular Dystrophy Association's Fill the Boot campaign. Monday, August 22nd at 8 p.m., benefiting Aiden's Army of Angels. And Monday, September 12th at 8 p.m., benefiting the Serving Our Kids Foundation. Get tickets or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. 
Lace up your bowling shoes for the Bowl for the Gold fundraiser to support Special Olympics Nevada, or SONV. The games are happening Saturday, August 20th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Strike Zone Bowling Center at Sunset Station. Registration includes three games of bowling, food, and non-alcoholic beverages. SONV athletes will be on hand to play with each team. You can register as an individual for $55 or a team of four for $220. This event always sells out, so register now at SONV.org. That's SONV.org. Clark County officials and the October 1 Memorial Committee are looking for ideas and proposals for a memorial project to honor victims of the October 1, 2017 mass shooting at the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival in Las Vegas. This is the start of an 18-month process and you have until September 30th to submit your ideas. There are other ways to get involved in the process and share your expertise as well. Find out all the details and submission requirements at clarkcountynv.gov slash one October memorial. That's clarkcountynv.gov slash the number one October memorial. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 